Welcome to Fire Your Therapist, a podcast with a radical perspective on mental health. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Dan. Welcome back to Fire Your Therapist, and welcome to part two. We still have Tanya with us today, and we're just going to jump right back into our conversation. What can we do in these situations that's yeah. helpful? Um, you know, especially where you're working, I'm sure you've come up with all sorts of ways to partner with them and you've seen the need that's there yeah. and you're able to offer something, even if it's an hour a week or however often you see them mm-hmm. to show them a different type of relationship like this, yeah. showing them what, um, what relating looks like. At least they'll start to question those other relationships. At least they'll start to place that in a context of, Oh, these people are all participating in this system. Yeah. And, and, Maybe we could do something different, except, you know, my teacher has so much at stake. She's not allowed to talk to me about certain things because there's liability there. And I don't know how old the kids are that you're working with, if that's a a conversation that you're allowed to introduce. But it's a really important one. In fact, we're doing an intervention right now. We're having a show and talking about this thing that's happening to kids. Maybe uh, someone who went to school and they (laughs) participate in these systems will hear it. And they'll start to put things together. So... I always have that hope that they're going to come into contact with someone like us that is going to be very, number one, really transparent, and two, like you were saying, very explicit about the things that are sustaining the trauma to keep happening, because it is trauma. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and and when kids can't put words to it, we can, and at least introduce these ideas to them, not in a way of like infuriating them and making them rage against the machine, but just helping Mm -hmm. them to for what we can help them get through the systems they are going to participate in because if yeah. it's not school it's going to be their family or it's going to be mm-hmm. some other system where they're a child and yeah. they don't really get to make decisions but at least someone knows and sees them in that yeah yeah definitely and uh, for most of the kids that I see and teachers actually teachers are a great target for really illustrating this kind of stuff explicitly and having some resonance about the responsibilities that they have because most teachers, I mean, I know teachers personally. Um, I've known many teachers before I began working in the education field. They tend to have these very sort of ideals driven, soft hearted, um, up with kids kind of, kind of orientations, but the system the system of educational achievement, the system of rigidifying knowledge, the system of only, only these kinds of behaviors are going to be acceptable. And when you step outside of these behaviors, there's not going to be any curiosity why it is. What, how it is that that made sense for you. Um, they tend to really respond well to conversations about this kind of stuff. I've been having more of them recently with teachers, and they've been really helpful. They've been helpful for me, and I th- they've been helpful for teachers, and I've had a lot of feedback this year from teachers because I've spent a lot more time with them doing consultation about how it is that um, 
they've never actually spent this much time talking about these things. And it's been very helpful for them um, in terms of how they relate to their students and how they relate to the expectations the system has put on them. Well, plus, of course, I just do very sort of direct work with them, like, you know, behavior intervention plans where it is where they're not going to be, I'm not going to just tell them do this, this, and the other thing. I'm going to actually create systems for them where I'm providing a direct service as well. So it's really clear to me, listening to you two talk about this, that your relational perspectives and training have informed how you see what's happening, how you talk to others about what's happening, how you describe it. Um, and Tanya, it sounds like you were starting to describe how that perspective informs the way you work. And I wonder if both of you have anything you could offer about how your relational training and perspective have done so in, in how you work with the kids and if you do things differently, um, either now that you've had that training or compared to other colleagues in the same work. Um, I would say before I had the training, I think I felt very suffocated by the liability uh, within the systems. And now I see how harmful and traumatizing it is to kids. So I will, um, I, don't, I don't directly work now within the systems that I find that are the most traumatizing. So I feel that what's informed my decision is that I sought work in a different area so that I was able to provide more of what more of the values that I that I agree with so I don't think that I could survive in a system that you're working in Tanya unless I was maybe in the capacity where you, that you are I definitely couldn't teach because it would it would drive me crazy to yeah. be able to see these kids come in and there's too many to handle <laughs> mm -hmm. and 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 if there is one that really needs you and you know that what you're bound to um that would break my heart every day yeah. So I feel like the way that I'm able to participate now is I, I reflect on something that a supervisor of mine said once upon a time. I was working with a client that we, we would have, you know, if we were to diagnose her, we would have said she's borderline. Mm -hmm. And she used to come in during sessions and say things like, you don't want to see me anymore, do you? And she, she would say these things that... I have to admit were true because our sessions were so hard. I was like, oh, you know, maybe I really don't want to see her today because it's, it was always so chaotic and so difficult. So I went to my supervisor and she said, when your client says something like that, this was so radical to, for me to hear at the time. She said, when mm -hmm. your client says something like that, you believe her. She said, because she's very good at, she's honed a skill over her lifetime of being able to tell when people are pulling away from her yeah. and she can sense it sooner than you can. So when she mm -hmm. says it, you need to check in with yourself and see if you really are pulling away. Yeah. And I think it was the words where she said, you need to believe her. That stuck with me for the rest of my relational career. So when I'm with kids, I believe them when they, you know, they look at me and they say that it's too hard or, or that the work is, you know, we're working on some math or something. And, um, you know, they're losing their concentration and their focus and things that I'll stop and I'll have a dialogue with them and I'll include mm -hmm. them in this process. I completely try to take that um, oppressive cycle out of it of you're going to take a test. You're going to be timed. You're going to get a score. You, um, mm -hmm. 
I'm going to teach you something. You, if you don't give me the right answers back, then, you know, you'll have a grade that you don't like. And mm-hmm. we, we stop and we go, well, what's going on for you right now? <laughs> I mean, yeah. we have dialogue and whatever they tell me, I believe them. And we try to partner together to do something about it. So, you know, when you work with kids on the spectrum, what's always happening is the sensory stuff. They're, they're seeing something out the window or they're hearing some sound that I don't hear. Yeah. I've learned to tune these things out. So, oh, okay, so the light's bothering you. Let's get up and do something about that. So we get up and we turn on the lamps and we, we turn off the oppressive overhead fluorescent lights uh-huh. and we try something new. So it's, I think if we are constantly experimenting yeah. and just believing them yeah. and being really transparent about, especially with kids, being really transparent about um, when we've made a mistake yeah, and say, oh, I'm, you know, oh, you're right. And giving them lots of opportunities to correct you and have power in the situation yeah. when you're working together. I think that's really relational and showing that we're all kind of, you know, trying to trying to get that collaborative atmosphere going yeah. so that they become a little bit more empowered. So they develop that voice of something's not right here because kids are really, they really take the temperature well in systems. They do. You know, they become the identified patient because they see it. They see what's happening and they Mm -hmm. have a real reaction to it. And I I think the more we take them seriously, Mm -hmm. they actually have this amazing ability to regulate our systems to a place that's good for everybody. You know, that's like there's more empathy going around and there's more transparency because, you know, the kid's going to say what's on their mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's not going to always be a filter. Yeah. We, we might talk about how kids don't have the best executive functioning skills because their brain isn't fully developed yet at a certain age. But isn't that a good thing? Because they're being more honest about what's happening. Mm-hmm. If we let them regulate us, which doesn't happen because we're the adults and we have the power and we decide what happens. But we don't. Right. You're beholden to someone. I'm beholden to right. someone. They're beholden to someone. Which makes us want the power over the child so much more, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, it happens. I'm, I'm guilty of that, of like, I have someone I have to report to and they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're putting certain boundaries and measures on me. And so now... You know, I get to do that to you because that's the way life is. But, right. but if we actually let them regulate us, it's yeah. really amazing what happens. I think that's the really, I don't know, the relational I, aspect that I offer. I totally agree. I think the kids really need an opportunity to be more empowered. And I think that by and large systems would benefit because I think that if systems, these systems, particularly education is in place to educate children but the way the way it educates children is just too rigid and it quite frankly very very often it does it gives short shrift for uh, kids if it's designed for kids then why doesn't it look more like something that would be a good match for kids and I think that if we put kids in the feedback loop, which is essentially what you're saying doing, I think that, I think that the system would absolutely benefit from that enormously. But I don't think that typically, I don't think there's enough um, faith, and I don't think that there's enough space for the results that mm-hmm. the people at the top say that, they need to have in order to 
have evidence that kids are getting an education. Evidence is what they want. Evidence is what they yeah. want. But, ev- but, but evidence comes from books and scholars and books and scholars. Very uh, Not even books and scholars sort of at the leading edge of education. But certainly, this is, this is old news. There are different, I know I'm going back to this, there are so many different types of intelligences. But yet we're only privileging one. And it's it's really it sucks. It's really bad for kids. I think it's really bad for kids. And I think quite frankly, I mean I'm really drawing like a huge broad stroke, but it's probably really bad for adults. It's probably why statistically, I don't really know where the statistic came from, but it floats around all the darn time. You know, twenty-five percent of adults are in some sort of psychopharmaceutical medication and could it be that they never had a chance to lead in their own life and they kept being measured by a template that didn't include what it is that they could bring to the table and not only did it not include it in a way where um, you just you, you don't have social capital within the system but it absolutely depending upon the child and how the child presents, put them in a position where they were so under-resourced in that system that they got totally screwed. And I just, I, I'm totally soapboxing here, but I just, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, I, I will happily get on that soapbox with you. I think having had a research background before I came into mental health work and then hearing people spout off about evidence-based this and that. Mm -hmm. uh, And honestly, most people that have given me lectures about that don't have research experience. They don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like it gives authority Mm -hmm. to that uh, perspective. And having had a research background, it's really easy to prove that a thing you've set up to work in one particular way either mm-hmm. works or doesn't work based on a participant's ability to perform in the one way you set it up to work. Right. So to say something is evidence-based is really only to say it works for people who can perform in the way that this system is designed to perform, Yeah. not to say that it works for humans en masse. Yeah. And I think it's such a misnomer these days to cluster at least in the in the mental health world to mm-hmm. cluster CBT and all of these specific modalities in the, in the therapy world as evidence-based and throw the other things out because there's actually now probably just as much research about the interpersonal neurobiology mm-hmm. of relational work and of mindfulness and mm-hmm. of you know treating trauma with yoga mm-hmm. r- rather than relying on some more traditional quote evidence unquote yeah. based uh, approach that um, hearing you describe this, like it's so obvious to me that that is uh, a very top-down, not a very thought-out from people's experience and mm-hmm. then planned up from there yeah. um, approach to education. And even having not worked in education, my own experience as a student very much matched what you two are describing. Mm-hmm. You know, there were things that... Uh, I excelled at, there were things that I didn't excel at, there were things that friends of mine excelled at or didn't excel at, Mm -hmm. and it was really obvious 
that we were excelling or not excelling at the way the system wanted us to show up. Yeah. Not at actually being smart or not smart. Right. And it's, 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 it's frustrating mm-hmm. for sure. Frustrating and heartbreaking and overwhelming because it's a huge system. Yeah. And it's even bigger than education. It's so embedded in our culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted to say something about evidence based. Um, I don't, I completely acknowledge what you're saying. That is exactly what evidence base is. And quite frankly, if there's too many outliers, those are thrown out because you weren't able to participate in this particular experiment, which was replicated and replicated um, in a way which made sense of it. So therefore, you're an outlier. And I, ta- I talk to a lot of people about, about norms I, I do actually spend some time sort of depending uh, in IEP meetings and or if I have to talk to parents mm-hmm. beforehand about how norms is what is a norm but just sort of a series of a series of different variables showing up in different people and then through a, through the miracle of science and math we decide to make it into a line. But mm-hmm. when you look at the line, it's nothing but loads of different variables. And these students and how these students show up, they, most people aren't going to be right on the line. Well, they're culturally biased variables as well. Oh, I mean. yeah, definitely. <laughs> and even in terms of evidence-based practices, I feel like I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because, quite frankly... If you take a microscope to evidence-based practices like some of the CBT practices, the overgeneralization and or um, catastrophizing and stuff like that, it's, if anything, it, it gives, depending on the person, it could potentially give some ground to stand on where you get an opportunity to say, okay, well, this was overgeneralized for what reason? Let's talk about the systemic, the pieces that supported that kind of overgeneralization. People don't, people particularly, including kids, they don't behave how they behave in a vacuum. They're reacting to something. And if a kid overgeneralizes something, they're overgeneralizing it for a reason and to sort of indicate why it is that they're choosing that particular behavior and why they're choosing it over and over again and point out the absence of other of other options that have been presented to them um, within their natural environment, relationally, and the fact that, oh, you know what, you just don't, that, that, that never showed up in your life. That's a huge, that's like a huge advantage to give a kid to say that you are not reacting in the wrong way all the time. Because quite frankly, just as much as the kid is using that behavior, the system is the one that's overgeneralizing the educational system in this particular case. Whereas if you with some time one-on-one with a kid, you can show them, you can indicate to them when it is that they behave like that. And when you start talking about optional behaviors and getting their needs met, a lot of the time they will just say like, oh, I didn't even, like, I didn't know that I could do that like that. And for them to be blamed for an absence of options, Mm -hmm. again, that's, Mm -hmm. 
that's not right. I mean, I think all three of us as adults can <laughs> can call BS on that. That's not right. That's not their fault. Right. I think that the people that are judging the, the this is the right behavior, wrong behavior for the kids, and they have these rules that mm-hmm. must be followed. I mean, doesn't that just mean that someone somewhere decided what was right and what was wrong, and it was based off of whatever experiences that they had mm-hmm. and what they're, they're reaching for, which I, I guess I understand is when you're trying to manage a, a large group of kids yeah. with very, well, way too few adults, and the kids are outnumbering the adults, you know? And their needs are so diverse. And they're so diverse. And the goals are so not <laughs> right. <gasps> right. We have all of these issues and we have four choices. And and the reason you have four choices is because now I'm being held liable to the choices that are given to me by someone else. Mm-hmm. I don't get to come up with my own creative choice. Yeah. Um, we're definitely at the, the, the point of our show where we have to start checking out. And so I'm just going to mm-hmm. do my now. And I'm sure we all have some extra thoughts to throw in. Um, you were talking about intelligences. And I thought about how that's so great that we identified that kids learn differently and um, they take in information in different ways. It's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And it was so great until we decided to systematize it. And if you're a visual learner, then we will teach you like this. Mm -hmm. And then we've unfortunately taken the wonderful spark and fire out of education, you know, where the teacher gets excited to see the child have that aha moment. I mean, I interview teachers all day and I say, Mm -hmm. what... Uh, what do you love the most about teaching? Every single one of them says, I love the moment when the child gets it. And there's nothing more rewarding about that than when you were creatively exploring your environment and you were experimenting with different ways of helping them understand information and then it it just happens. There's nothing better than that. If you go to your tool belt of techniques and you pick out something that's supposed to work for this kid and you Mm -hmm. come and you try it, do you really get anything from this technique that you, it wasn't your technique you learned it from somewhere else yeah it wasn't organic it didn't just sort of happen like that and so I guess I'm thinking about this sort of oppressive checks and balances where I have to first assess the child and find out what's going on then I have to go and find the technique that's supposed to be used in that circumstance mm-hmm. now I'm just doing this robotic thing it's so dehumanizing for teachers for administrators for the children yeah and I guess what I, what I really want to see and I, what I think is going to save education in the long term is mm-hmm. um, just reigniting that curiosity. Maybe children would love learning again and they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel like they, yeah. they only have to get good grades so that their parents will love them. Ouch. Yeah, right. I, just don't, I, don't, I hate seeing all that creativity being stifled, which mm-hmm. is what happens, right? And then we become adults. This is a whole other show, Dan. But we become adults and we've, our fire's gone out. And right. we just, we go to work and we do our job and then we go home um, and we get so burnt out so quickly mm-hmm. because we don't have any say anymore. Our voice is gone. Yeah. Mark Fifield always says that it starts when you're a child, that you have this like sort of spontaneous needs happening and you're bouncing around your environment and you, mm-hmm. you see, and then someone tells you you're wrong. Yeah. Do either of you need to check out or have any last thoughts? No, I just enjoyed the conversation. So it was it was it was fun talking about this. I don't get too much opportunity to. Um, I really appreciated hearing this conversation a lot. Um, I think a couple things stuck with me. It's not really a check out so much as just um, sort of echoing back uh, the things that stuck with me as really meaningful. Um, 
at some point, Carrie, you said that you trusted them when they would describe things. And that's a huge bit of, uh, of holding a relational perspective that mm-hmm. um, you don't overrule someone's description of their experience just because it doesn't match what you want them to have or think they're supposed to have. And the other thing that stuck with me, uh, Tanya, at some point you were talking about how everybody's beholden to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids to parents and teachers, the teachers to the school, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just really helped me find my empathy for everybody participating in a system. Yeah. Whether they're a teacher or a tutor or a student or a school administrator or a principal or, you know, anybody in any role that's deciding or that from the outside we might perceive as deciding how the system should run. That helps me have some empathy that it's it's this long chain of beholden. Yeah. And um, and that's difficult. That drives so many things. Um, but like I said, it, it helps me find my empathy. But yeah, other than that, just thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. If anyone who's listening has questions or comments, um, Tanya's here because she listened to the show. And if anybody's jealous that Tanya got to be on our show, well, guess what? Call us, email us, something. You could be next. Please email us at feedback at fireyourtherapistshow.com. Tweet us at FYT Show. Like us on Facebook. And um, you're about to hear a whole bunch of shows come rolling out in the next few weeks because we have so many wonderful episodes for you to listen to. Fire Your Therapist was produced by Yumi Media. Subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to fireyourtherapistshow.com where you can find podcasts, resources, and more.